to the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. I'm Kara Hansel-Keehan. Today, we'll discuss a new study by Senthil Kumar et al. titled, Pre-Operative SARS-CoV-2 Infection Increases Risk of Early Post-Operative Cardiovascular Complications Following Non-Cardiac Surgery. This article was published April 25th, 2023. Joining us today are Associate Editor Dr. Jason Carter, author Dr. Anai Kutari, and expert Dr. Michael Joyner. Let's get started. Jason? Thank you, Kara. Over the past three and a half years, nothing has marked the health community more than SARS-CoV-2. Whether it's the elevated mortality rates in the early months and years of the pandemic, or the more recent realities that it has shifted from pandemic to endemic. Along those lines, we are now beginning to have enough time and data to better understand the various elements of this endemic reality. And the present study by Anai Katari and colleagues examined a large national and multi-institutional cohort to determine the associations between COVID-19 disease severity and the risk for post-operative cardiovascular and cerebral vascular events. And I, this is an impressive data set that includes over 450,000 patients from the N3C data enclave. Please share with our listeners an overview of the study and your primary findings. I'll start by just thanking you so much for having me and sharing our enthusiasm for this work and the opportunity to discuss it with you all. Uh, I have to start really by giving a ton of credit to the co-first doctors, Gopika, Sanford Kumar, and Nate Verhagen. These are two all-star medical students at the Medical College of Wisconsin and can't do this kind of work without uh, really strong colleagues. And that includes, you know, everyone on our team. We've used this data to actually change policy and inform things here at our institution. You know, I always say it's kind of dangerous to get surgeons, anesthesiologists, infectious disease and perioperative medicine folks together, which is kind of what this team ended up being uh, assembled as. And so I'm very, very excited. You know, as you mentioned, this is a study that used the N3C data enclave, which is the National COVID Cohort Collaborative. It's 20 million patients out of 80 sites approximately looking at where it is today. And uh, it really allows this kind of work to be done in a multi-institutional way, which honestly, prior to the pandemic, these types of resources were scarce to be able to do a project like this. I think a a story to give you some context for why we wanted to do this study would be helpful. And I remember standing in the OR, it was kind of October of 2020, and we were about to do a liver resection, and all of us kind of looked at each other and, and thought, this is the first time we had ever operated on a patient who had completely recovered from COVID-19 and was now going to undergo major surgery. And it was, as far as we knew, the first time it had ever happened at our institution and perhaps across the world, this was a very rare and unique situation. It was a little bit of uncharted territory and patient to great, but intraoperatively, I remember anesthesiologists saying that, you know, there were some hemodynamic changes that were a little bit out of the ordinary. And, and we thought, well, knowing what we know about COVID and potentially some of the end organ changes that happened with the infection and recognizing that we're now putting patients through pretty substantial stress through the course of an elective operation, you know, how do these things integrate together? And um, shortly thereafter, actually two big studies had come out that kind of informed our early policy around this. One was an international study that had shown that we had to wait about seven to eight weeks, basically, before this risk went away. And that data took some time to get updated. And this study really, you know, at the time was one of the first to relook at this after the pandemic had progressed and made some progress in this space. I think that we broke this analysis down in a, a unique way, and it's really four major components. We, we did find that the majority of patients had surgery eight plus weeks 
after their COVID infection, which kind of is in line with what the policies that were driven around perioperative care reflected during this phase of the pandemic. But we did find that about 40% of patients had it earlier, which kind of reflected real world practice, what we'd seen in our own institution, which was that you know patients who relatively did well after their infections were kind of moved through the surgical pipeline, so to speak. The first phase of our analysis was looking at how COVID impacted MACE. And again, this is people who had prior history of COVID and then subsequently underwent surgeries. So this was what was not in the emergent or urgent setting. And um, we found a 12% increase in their overall odds of having a MACE event after the operation. Second was that disease severity was, was really important, a nearly four times greater increase if you had a severe COVID infection. The third is that we wanted to provide some guidance around timing. So um, we saw that there was a slight increase in ACE that happened for the first four weeks, but that kind of went away after four weeks. And then we were curious how vaccination played into this because it was such a relevant topic at the time and, and actually found that in both groups, those who had COVID and those who hadn't had COVID, vaccination decreased the risk without, importantly, increasing the risk of any of the adverse post-operative outcomes that we we're looking at. So um, kind of a, a very interesting story that led this off and really um, we think is impactful work from a policy standpoint. Thanks so much, Anai, for that overview. Uh, again, very impressive work. I have one more question for you before we bring in Mike for his thoughts and reaction. Uh, one of the aspects that struck me in this study was the interplay between, as you mentioned, dis disease severity, vaccination status, and the timing of the SARS-CoV that all contributed to the risk. Walk us through one more time that delicate balance and your take-home message about those three factors and specifically how physicians and patients should weigh them when it comes to perioperative care and stratification? I love that question. And I got to give a huge assist to peer review here. You know, when we first put this paper through the review process, I mean, it's a little bit of, of our own ignorance. We, we didn't quite see how important this relationship between timing and severity was. And so we actually did some additional analyses to try to, to play that out, which I think is really the take-home message of the study. And I'd point listeners to figure three in its panel C, which I, is probably the most important summative piece of data here, which is severity really drives this relationship. And so if you have severe disease, even out to eight weeks, there's still a persistent elevation of MACE risk uh, after surgery. For people with moderate disease, that risk seems to come back to baseline at about eight weeks. And then for people with mild disease, and these are those who did not require hospitalization, delaying surgery for any kind of prolonged period of time beyond just making sure that that mild disease doesn't turn into moderate or severe disease is likely not necessary. And we've actually informed our own clinical pathways here around pre-op testing and what happens to someone who tests positive around um, essentially the data and that figures a huge assist to the review process in that as well. Well, incredibly practical and impactful. So thank you. Mike, you've been an international leader throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, including some really impactful work related to convalescent plasma treatment. We're so grateful and proud of your efforts early in the pandemic, which no doubt helped save lives when our scientific community was desperately searching for answers. Could you please share your thoughts and reactions to the study by Anai and his colleagues? Yeah, and just Jason and, and, and I and, and Kara, just so everybody knows what MACE is, major cardiovascular events, uh, that's sort of an epidemiological outcomes term. The physiologist listening to this would not. Uh, what's really interesting to me here is somebody who's been doing anesthesia for a long time and went to medical school in the early 80s. One of the things we we're always worried about is when is it safe to have surgery after something else happens to you? And the classic case here has always been heart attack. So when you had a, a an MI or an arrhythmia or some major cardiovascular event, when is it safe to have surgery again? And then how has that changed as we've gone from when we used to just let people have heart attacks and observe them till we started to intervene? 
Now, angioplasty and, and early uh, revascularization. And what I found interesting as I read this is the parallels between the data of 40 years ago when the how bad was the event somebody had played a role in when it was safe to do non-cardiac surgery in a patient who had a heart attack. So the severity story was similar. And then the four-week and eight-week thing, where if people had you know pretty straightforward, uncomplicated MIs, we thought we could go do something else to them a month later if it was really, really important. And certainly, uh, if people had been sicker, it was it was two months. So I, I find that the, the parallels between these stories to be quite interesting. And I also find it interesting again when I said about you know the cohort, the data set, the data sharing, the emphasis on real world data in the pandemic. So all of those things kind of converge here for a really nice story that happened early and could change clinical practice, how vaccination played a role, and so forth. And so, and I, my question always is, whenever you see some sort of you know severity played a role. We know that people who got, got sicker with COVID tended to be older, heavier, have you know three or four coexisting diseases, so on and so forth. So how much of it, if that increased risk in severe disease was you know, due at least in part to these demographic factors versus just the severity of the disease itself? Yeah, Mike, that's a really great point. I, I got to just take a pause here. It, it, I'm you know, a little starstruck by, by being on, on a podcast with you. You know, I'm so impressed with all the work that you've done uh, in this space and others. But, you know, I, I think, number one, statistical adjustment gets you only so far. So obviously, we did everything we could to try to isolate the effect size of the COVID infection, recognizing that there's these other covariates against our outcome. But no doubt, there's strong mediation as well, you know, with these other features that kind of play into the ultimate association between the COVID infection itself and the subsequent risk. I think it speaks to this in a larger sense that when you're looking at a patient who has had a prior COVID-19 infection and are considering surgery, similar to exactly like you described, other previous stressors that ultimately you know, are going to guide how you're going to you know, move forward with doing surgery, it's you have to kind of think about this holistically. Um, and in some ways, this is almost its own unique we're starting to think about it as a comorbidity, you know, that you have this infection history. Um, let's now consider it very similar to someone that has had chronic hypertension. If you look at the effect sizes of, you know, COVID-19 against some of these other comorbidities, they actually kind of look similar. And so I think it's definitely something we have to think about as part of our routine perioperative risk stratification. But, you know, these things all certainly interact together. One thing just to kind of follow up on that, which, which I, I find uh, to be, you know, most interesting, and, and people need to recall that elective surgery and even things that were semi-urgent was really, really shut down for, you know, 8, 12 weeks and really didn't start getting going again until the summer of 2020. And so we, we still, a lot of people did not get elective care, cancer surgeries and other things were sort of delayed. And I don't know whether we've caught up yet or not, but certainly there was a catch-up period where all of these people were in the pipeline waiting for something to happen. And then they were ready to go. And, and now we have a situation, and I, where, where the most recent data from the CDC based on the, on the um, transfusion database is, you know, 70, 80% of people have, have had infections. And, and remember also, early on, we learned this with the Theodore Roosevelt outbreak, that 50% of infections, especially in younger, reasonably healthy people, are minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. So now we have this situation where literally everybody's been exposed in every age group, and probably a lot of those have been asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. And some people have been exposed several times because people are not getting repeat infections. So how do you, how, what are your next steps to try to sort some of those things out? 
Well, my name is spelled A-N-A-I. And so I often will, you know, when there's these really hard questions, I just say A-I, you know, like yeah, <laughs> my name. Um, no, I, I think it's a, it's a really important question and, and one that I, I honestly just don't have an exact answer for. I, I, I think it clearly is that recognizing exactly what she says is that this is, is a spectrum disease. You know, there are going to be those that are mild asymptomatic who largely will be unaffected at least as far as we can tell when we look at some of the perioperative risk pieces of this, unaffected by their infection, but also not losing sight of those who may have some persistent after effects from their infection in the circumstances of moderate and severe disease. So to me, I think ensuring that we continue to recognize and ask patients, you know, what, what is your COVID history that you know of um, when we're weighing these decisions about right. surgery? Well, if you're joining us, we're on with two power players here, Anai Katari uh, out of the Medical College of Wisconsin and um, my, Dr. Michael Joyner from Mayo Clinic, and it's been a great conversation. I have one more question for both of you that I'd like each of you to, to think about and answer before we wrap things up. I think we can all agree we've shifted into endemic stages of COVID-19. I was recently reminded of this personally when I contracted a variant and uh, quite frankly, go back to the CDC website and look into what the appropriate quarantine and other procedures are now. It was a stark reminder, at least to me, that this is still out there and that we need to remain vigilant. I would like to ask both of you, what recommendations do each of you have for the public regarding COVID-19 that is both practical and something everyone can consider? And I, you certainly got me thinking about surgical timing and when that timing can be a controlled, of course, can't always be. Let's start with you and then have Mike finish us out. Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. I'm going to put this on those individuals who are having surgery a little bit, um, which is that if you're going to have surgery, I think it's really critical to let the treatment team know if you've had COVID-19, you know, making sure that because as Mike mentioned, increasingly, we're not finding that we know that based on the testing that we have access to in the electronic health record, for example, and you do rely a little bit on on what patients are experiencing. So be an advocate, you know, let, let the team know that this is something that you've recovered from and allow them to know that that's, that's part of your medical history in some ways. And then for the providers, I think this recognition of severity is such a crucial part of the story. And, you know, from a broad sense, you know, what can we do to decrease severity on the front end? And we've made tremendous progress in that space, you know, comorbidity management, vaccination, et cetera. So if there are things that we can do to reduce the severity of that infection from the get-go, we're seeing that the ramifications of that on um, things like surgery um, are somewhat mitigated. Thank you. Mike? Yeah, I think a couple of things, Jason. Uh, I think it's super important for high-risk people to get boosted uh, and to get boosted this fall. I, I think because the high-risk people are going to be the people that are also typically going to have more severe disease. So I think that's very, very important. And I think the other thing we have to recognize, and I can wear my old man's hat here, is that about two or 3% of the population doesn't make antibodies. Uh, they're immune compromised from transplantation, from drugs to treat autoimmune diseases because they've had long-term survivors from uh, leukemia, lymphoma, and heme malignancies, and a few odd uh, congenital uh, defects as well, or congenital diseases. And so what's really different than 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago is that we have 3% of the population that's immune compromised. So those people, when I started medical school, did not last long. And we now have this population. And, and so they're going to be continuously vulnerable. And many of these individuals get these sort of prolonged smoldering cases of COVID and become sort of variant incubators. So remember that when you're getting boosted or when you're doing some precautionary uh, maneuvers to try to stop the spread of COVID, that you may not be 
quote, protecting yourself or other healthy loved ones or friends or, or acquaintances, but you are protecting this two or 3% of the population that, that is immune compromised. And I, I think those are the people we have to keep in mind. And those are the people we increasingly see in surgery getting, you know, or getting CAR T therapy or, or uh, getting bone marrow transplants or other forms of transplantation. So I think that's a lot, you know, 3% doesn't sound like a lot, but 3% of the population in the United States is like 10 million people. So it's a lot of people. So that's what I worry about. I worry about the immune compromise and, and the fact we the antivirals are good, but they don't cure COVID in those people. We've lost the monoclonal antibodies. We still have very high titer convalescent plasma, which has been very effective in these people. But we need to keep our eye on the, on the immunocompromised patient to really try to protect those individuals as, as much as we can. Well, thank you, Mike. And, you know, just again, I still remember the conversation, Mike, you and I had a little ways into the pandemic, just about the extraordinary efforts uh, that that MDs and nurses and mid providers played and continue to play and the strain that that puts on on families and everything. I just want to thank both of you as MDs for all that you're doing, everything that you have done, everything you are doing, everything you will do. So as we wrap up, thank you for being part of this insightful podcast. AJP Heart and Circulation remains committed to novel studies that examine the complex interplay between COVID-19 and both cerebrovascular and cardiovascular health. I wish you both much success with the future work in this area and your other areas of research. Kara, back to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP heart.